Following last week's text, Jesus continues to heal the sick and teach the crowds and rankle the religious elite. He again feeds thousands from a few loaves and fewer fish. And once he arrives in Caesarea Philippi, he asks the gathered disciples who people say that he is. They tell him that some think he is Elijah or John the Baptist come again from the dead. And then Peter proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus rejoices, asserting that such belief and believers like Peter form the very foundation of the church. In what is known as the first of three passion predictions, Jesus then tells them that the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus himself, will soon suffer, be killed, and then raised after three days. And Peter protests causing Jesus to call him a stumbling stone and Satan, even. This one, this Peter, who moments before was on the receiving end of Jesus' praise, is now the one who is rebuffed for not understanding who Jesus is at all. I invite you to listen as I begin reading from Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, and through 17, verse 9. Together, let us listen for the word of God. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life, or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became bright as light. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will set up three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking... Suddenly, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy ground. 
When we think of holy ground moments, this time on that mountaintop ranks right up there with Moses and the burning bush and the women in the garden on the first Easter. Removed from the rest of the world, three disciples witness God's breaking in, and for a moment, everything becomes clear. It is extraordinary, and unlike anything they have witnessed before, and Matthew's gospel, along with Mark's and Luke's, tries to find the words to describe what happens. Jesus' appearance has changed somehow. His face shines, transfigured is the word they use. And somehow, Jesus is still Jesus. This one who has fed thousands and called the ragtag group of disciples into ministry and calmed the storm is the same one speaking with Moses and Elijah, two figures from the Old Testament that point to the coming of the Messiah. And this momentous occasion gives Peter an idea. He'll build tents or shrines for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Maybe he's trying to dig in and camp out to stake out more of a permanent spot on this holy terrain and stay here surrounded by this otherworldly cloud. Or maybe he simply wants to find a way to mark the place where something unheard of occurred. The moment when God made all of it crystal clear. Can we blame him? Then comes one of my favorite moments. While Peter is babbling on about shrines, God interrupts him while he is still talking. I get Peter. Quite often I am Peter. Some people get nervous or excited and get quiet. I get excited or nervous and I talk. God probably wants to interrupt me too. Quite frequently, honestly. Here, God interrupts Peter and tells him and the other two disciples that this Jesus is God's son, the beloved, just as God declared at Jesus' baptism. And at the baptism, at least in Matthew's account, it's unclear whether anyone other than Jesus hears God's voice. Here on the mountain, the disciples hear God speak too. They fall on their faces in fear until Jesus lays his hand on them and tells them to stand up or be raised, as the Greek reads. And they see Jesus standing with them. The one who spoke with Moses and Elijah, the one whom God declared declared to be the beloved son, this Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is standing right there with them still. Jesus goes on to command these three to tell no one what they saw for a while. I'm not sure they could find the words even if they tried. Either way, they head back down the mountain with minds and hearts full of this wondrous thing they have just witnessed. They just can't tell anyone about it. And scholars give all sorts of reasons for this, but I wonder if Jesus might simply be concerned that talk of the mountaintop might get in the way of their seeing and speaking to the holy ground moments that await them in the valley. I wonder if Jesus worries that the mountaintop moment could overshadow the power of all that lies ahead. I wonder if he worries how their testimony about the mountaintop could curtail the good holy work Jesus is bound and determined to do with them in the valley below. 
Now, Presbyterians, our tradition has on occasion shied away from testimonies. How's that for soft peddling? Testifying can make us uncomfortable. It can also get competitive. I, for one, have not had a mountaintop moment, per se. I have had holy ground moments in the midst of the valley, however. I'm guessing, at least hoping, that you have too. And those testimonies, telling those stories, is essential to our being the church. Testimony is not about how special or perfect we are. Testimony declares how amazing God is. Without the testimony of those who came before us, without their courage to see and name a God who dares to get involved in the ordinariness of human life, we would not have scripture, nor would we have the precious inheritance of a living faith. And living faith is more than words on a page. A living faith asks questions and wonders why. A living faith calls us to have the courage to risk relationships with those who seem alien or even hostile. A living faith prods us to have the brashness to proclaim that not everything can be pinned down or explained. A living faith urges us to trust that God is as close as our breath and more mysterious than the stardust flung here from distant galaxies. And a living faith changes how we see the world around us, changes how we relate to others. Simply put, faith changes us. And when we find the words to share our faith, to witness to what we have seen and known on the mountaintop and in the valley, perhaps by the grace of God and the work of the Spirit, others are changed too. I know I am. And those moments at bedsides and in backyards and Bible study and lunch bunch and conversations on the sidewalk downtown or in the grocery store, I am reminded that we are always standing on holy ground. It's easy to forget. Life speeds by, busyness consumes us, and heartbreak stops us in our tracks. There are bills to be paid, errands to be run, families to be fed, homework to be finished, and jobs to do. So if faith is going to change us, if our faith is going to change the world, we need reminders that God shows up in ways that do not make sense. And at times when nothing makes sense, not only in the rarefied air of the mountaintop, but also here in the valley. The Books and Brews group just finished a book entitled Project Hail Mary. Quick, quick plug, we'll meet next month. Look for it in the banner. This is the story of Dr. Ryland Grace, an academic turned middle school science teacher who winds up being the lone passenger on a spaceship sent to figure out how to stop the literal end of the world due to a rogue organism that is devouring the sun's energy. His journey is intended to be a one-way trip. The plan is for him to send information and saving help back to Earth using small spaceships once he has made his discovery, giving his life for the lives of an entire planet. Along the way, Dr. Grace befriends an alien he names Rocky. They are stranger than strangers. They are alien to one another, yet 
Rocky's planet is in dire straits as well, so rather than assuming that the other is a threat to be battled or ignored, they risk a relationship to work together to see if they can find a solution. Together, these very different creatures learn to understand one another, laugh with one another, support one another, and cherish one another as the dearest of friends. They have an overwhelmingly huge task before them, and yet there is beauty and humor and, yes, grace in the moments in between. Some of my favorite, most poignant moments come when Rocky insists that he watch Dr. Grace sleep. It's standard practice for Rocky's people. Sleep is apparently a dangerous thing for Rocky's kind, so he insists that he stand by as Grace sleeps. Grace finds it kind of strange at first, but he comes to appreciate the profound tenderness of Rocky's vigils. Now, the two cannot live in a shared space because they require different air to breathe and different temperatures to survive. So Rocky cleverly creates tunnels and a protective bubble, enabling the two to work alongside one another toward a shared goal of saving their peoples. Rocky and his people live in complete darkness, using sonar instead of sight. Dr. Grace depends on his vision and light to determine where they are and what needs to be done next. Grace is the scientist. Rocky is the engineer. They are different in countless ways, and yet they find common ground and even holy ground in this risky relationship. In the midst of deepest space, as they pledge themselves and their lives to saving their own people along with an alien Jesus knows he, Peter, James, and John cannot stay on that mountain. He knows that a humanity in need of saving remains in the valley below. He will give his life for them, for us, strange, ornery, and stubborn as we are. And Peter does not like the notion of his beloved teacher dying or suffering in any way, nor do we, if we're honest, and the powers that be will be bent on stopping this one who disrupts everything with love, justice, kindness, and mercy. I understand why Peter might prefer to keep Jesus on that mountain, away from the risks and threats that loom in the valley below. And yet Jesus is determined to risk relationship with those who would welcome him and with those who are threatened by him and would do him harm. He will not be deterred from sharing his life, his light with them, or from giving his life for them, all of them. There are people who need saving and holy work that needs doing. Jesus heads down the mountain and toward Jerusalem to save every last one of us and to build a church with and on the likes of us. Toward the end of the book, spoiler alert, Rocky comes to Grace with tremendous news. The Earth's sun has returned to full brightness. The light has not gone out and has, in fact, been transformed back into the life-giving, planet-sustaining miracle that life on Earth relies upon. Rocky knows this because he and his people have been hoping, waiting, and looking in their own way for the sun's brightness to break through the deep darkness of space.
from light years away. This news is unbelievably huge, mountaintop worthy even, and yet this news is matched by the image of Dr. Grace's new life among Rocky's people. A life filled with kindness, community, good work to do, hospitality, joy, and love of the holiest kind. There is no mention of God or faith in the entire book. And yet I see holy ground everywhere grace finds himself. Then again, I'm always on the lookout for grace and goodness and holiness and hope, not simply because of what I do, but also because of who I depend on God to be. Yes, I lean heavily on God's mystery, on God's being God and my not being God. And I need to know that God shows up and is faithfully at work, not only in the big show on the mountaintop, but also here in the foothills and in the valley. The salvation of all creation seems light years away most days. And yet if I listen closely, I can hear God's voice celebrating the beloved son and calling me to listen to him above the noise that surrounds me, surrounds us in the valley. When I see a spark of beauty or hear a whisper of hope or witness an act of self-giving sacrifice or a new risky relationship being born, can I be certain that the God of the universe has broken in? Maybe not. Yet when we are poised to listen for the ways of God, to look for the holy work of redemption, promise, hope, mercy, justice, love, and life, I am convinced that we will see that we too are standing together on holy ground. I'm convinced that by the grace of God, we will catch a glimpse of our God in our midst, not only on mountaintops, but here in the midst of the lowest and lowliest of valleys. For friends, this is the place where God in Christ comes to meet us. This is the place where Emmanuel, God with us, risks relationship with us. This is the place where God watches us as we sleep. The place where God stands beside us in our most frightening moments. The place where God touches our shoulders and bids us be raised. The place where God enables us to stand again and take the next right step. And this is the place where Christ calls us to be his people and to be his church. For this is the place where God and Christ has promised to be with us always. Holy ground indeed. Thanks be to God. Amen.